and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Ryan LaVarnway has had quite a journey in Major League Baseball. He was originally drafted by the Boston Red Sox in the sixth round in 2008 out of Yale University. And we'll talk about his experience at Yale and how unique it is to be in Major League Baseball. There's only one other person that he mentions in today's podcast that took a similar journey. And since making his Major League debut in 2011, Ryan has played in parts of 10 Major League Baseball seasons for eight different teams. He's also represented Israel in the Olympics and the World Baseball Classic, which he was getting ready to go to when we recorded this podcast. Traditionally, Ryan's played catcher, and we talk a lot about the mindset needed for that position, the importance of that position, and how it really is a position that requires great leadership. So we dive into that today. Ryan has been building a brand off the field as well, starting with a podcast and a website, and he's working on a book. He's someone who is definitely entrepreneurial and considers himself far more than simply a baseball player. But don't get it twisted. This guy loves baseball and will continue to play as long as he can. And he's enjoyed the journey and the process and all of the lessons the game has taught him up until now. So I think you're going to love Ryan's wisdom, his mindset, and the way he thinks about preparation and performance. So here is Ryan LaVarnway. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, You're actually getting ready for the World Baseball Classic, which is a big deal in baseball, and you're representing Israel. And when I was prepping for our conversation today, 
I heard you talk about this sense of belonging that you have when playing for Israel. And it's interesting because you also played for the Boston Red Sox and was part of a World Series. And I think of the Boston Red Sox and what they mean to their city. And there's a lot of belonging that goes on with Bostonians. I went to college with a lot of them. Um, there's other words to describe them as well, which we don't need to get into. But for you, can you talk about the sense of belonging that you have felt playing for Israel? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great thing to start this interview with, because that's the title of the children's book that I'm working on coming out with right now is Baseball and Belonging, uh, because I, I did play baseball at every level, and I had a ton of success at the high school level, college level, getting into pro ball, but it always felt like there was a little something missing until I started to get onto these teams that really came together as a unit. That Boston Red Sox team in 2013 was different than the Boston Red Sox team in 2012 when we lost 97 games, when we had a manager that didn't bring the team together necessarily, and we didn't have the player leadership to overcome that. 2013, we have almost the same roster, maybe one or two different guys, but we gel as a unit and we rally around the beards and we rally around helping the city heal after the Boston bombings and feeling like we're playing for something bigger than ourselves. And we go to win the World Series after being in last place in the division the year before. The same thing happened with Team Israel. We were a team that didn't have any business being in the tournament with the best teams in the world. But we rallied around the fact that we are all the Jamaican bobsled team of baseball. We were called wannabes, has-beens, never worse. We were, we were told we had no chance to be there and we looked like the cast of the Bad News Bears that perfectly filled out the roster of a team that had zero chance of winning and found a way to win anyway. So being able to have a, a shared goal and a shared vision like that, along with Team Israel, there was also the spiritual aspect of I had never been teammates with a, a bunch of Jewish men before. And the community that rallied around us it really helped me find myself as a man, and it really helped my, me find myself as a, as a Jewish man. What is your spiritual framework? My wife is Jewish. I'm Jewish. My mom's Jewish. We we have a Jewish household. You know, we don't go to temple every Saturday. You know, we we go on the on the high holidays. We light some candles on Fridays. I think it would be nice to turn off my phone and not use electronics on Saturdays, uh, but that's not practical in our in our current life, which I guess is kind of the point. Um, but I, I view myself as a Jewish man and a, and a proud part of the community. I've been thinking about this a lot. You've got two small kids. I've got two kids. I'm a little ahead of you. They're, they're six and seven. And just this morning, I was having a conversation with my wife because if you're raised Jewish, for me at least, uh, Hebrew school was a big part of that. And I don't know what it was like if, if you went, but it's not a really fun experience. And <laughs> I was saying to my wife, yeah, when you go to school during the day and then all your friends are playing video games or playing sports and you're going to learn more, it uh, doesn't necessarily jive with childhood. And so trying to figure out, all right, how do we instill um, some sort of compass in our kids and some sort of guiding principles while questioning what we believe in and not sure about what we're convicted in, I find to be really, really challenging. And yet, if you look at the research around this, as our society becomes less religious, we also are becoming less willing to, to give back to charity. There's also some more individualistic tendencies and some lack of caring for the collective. And I just think religion is definitely imperfect, but there are some beautiful components and guiding principles to it. As you think about your kids and being a father and you have conversations with your wife, how do you think about religion, and I know religion and spirituality can be separate, but as you think about raising kids, how, how do you think about what you want their relationship with religion to look like in, in your home? Well, well, first of all, thank you for considering my four-legged child as one of my two children. Uh, he doesn't really believe in, in religion. I thought I you know. have two kids. You have one I have, kid. I have one uh, four-legged West <laughs> Highland Terrier who's nine years old now and is definitely a part of our family. We'll and put one, a keep a we'll put a keep on on him. Well, so I thought you had two legged child. So you have one eight month old. Is that right? Yes. Yes. All right. So I jumped the gun a little bit. Sorry, Ryan's family. <laughs> okay. We're not breaking any news on this <laughs> no podcast. News. No news here. <laughs> so one kid. Do you think about it's a daughter, right? Yes. Do you think about your daughter? Like, how do you think about religion and and 
and how you're bringing her up. Well, this is something that I have a lot of experience in personally because my mom is Jewish and my dad is a disenchanted Catholic. And my sister would say she's, I don't know, nothing. She thinks there's a God, but would never name it. Um, being half Jewish, half Catholic, growing up in school when we studied the Holocaust, it was very much a like, oh man, that hurts. So I'm going to avoid that feeling. They didn't do that to me. I stepped away from the responsibility or the camaraderie with the victims. And as an adult, that's something that I maybe am embarrassed to look back and say that I did. But as a, as a young kid, that's a painful thing to learn about and to relate to. And then as I grew older, and now I, I've stepped into my Judaism more completely, I've also faced anti-Semitism for the first time. Because religion is something that unless you have a star of David on your chest and are being persecuted for it, people can't necessarily tell just by looking. So unless you purposely bring it up, they would never know. I don't have a Jewish last name like my like my mom's maiden name. So when I was going through media training with the Red Sox early on in my career, this was a, a different era 15 years ago. Where there was no social media yet. The There was no brand yourself. There was no like build your own brand. It was you play for the Boston Red Sox, that's the brand, and you need to protect that by purposefully avoiding any conversations that could be viewed as controversial. So Boston is, has some opinions, you know, as a city. They're not they're they're not the most forward-thinking city, I think people that know Boston can can understand. So I just didn't ever talk about it. When I announced I was playing for Team Israel, I had the first people like raise an eyebrow or end a sentence with a with a questioning tone or or voice their opinion. I had one teammate in the outfield one time say, if we're ever going to be friends more than teammates, I'm going to have to tell you that I know you're wrong in what you believe in. And mm -hmm. I'm going to have to have you come to the light, uh, which is an interesting conversation to have while shagging BP in the outfield of a baseball stadium. How did you respond to that? Um, well, in, inside myself, I just knew that we we probably weren't going to be friends if if he felt like he needed to say something and tell me I was wrong. It's not a that's not a conversation. That's a, a lecture. But as as far as getting back to your question, because I just took a really long way to to build some background and, and finally come back to this, is I felt like I was really neither. I felt like I didn't have a lot of religion in, in our household. We celebrated all the holidays. I was a very happy child. My my family, we loved each other. We spent a ton of time together. But when it came to having meaning, all of our holidays were celebrated for presents and a Christmas tree and a menorah and candles. So now when my parents still celebrate Christmas, it feels more empty for me because I'd rather you be celebrating it for Jesus Christ's birthday. It, that would make more sense to me. And when we celebrate Hanukkah, you know, Hanukkah is not a religiously significant holiday. We we play it up so Jewish kids don't feel left out by Christmas, right? You have, here's a bunch of presents for eight days, but you're celebrating perseverance and, and the fact that the candle wax didn't give up or whatever. So I try to lean into the significance. Like, why are we doing this? I want the meaning. I crave, I crave something deeper. So with my daughter, like I'd love to let her have the choice because I feel a stronger connection to my Judaism in the fact that I chose it instead of having the fact that it was pushed down my throat. But I also want her to feel a part of a community because that's something that I feel like I was lacking for a long time. Yeah. The choosing a piece is what I'm worried about. And I think from how I was raised, I don't want to say it was shoved down my throat, but it wasn't intentional as far as why we were doing what we were doing. It's just, this is what our family does. You know, this is what you do. And I can see us repeating it. And I think it's far more powerful, like you said, to choose something. I want to go into identity because I would imagine for you, um, as you're finding the sense of belonging, identity is also an interesting question. You went to Yale uh, for undergrad. Uh, I don't know how many Yaleys are playing professional baseball. Uh, you studied philosophy. You have bounced around and had a lot of different experience all over the country. You just got back from Australia. Uh, you have interests that go beyond sport, whether it's writing or broadcasting, or you have a podcast. How do you think about your identity when someone asks you, Hey, who are you, Ryan? What comes to mind for you? Oh man, that's such a deep question. And, and I appreciate the thought because I feel like we're all always finding ourselves, and 
similar to to baseball when as soon as you think you've got your swing figured out you're in trouble i think the second that you think you know who you are don't don't close the book because we're all always growing we're all always evolving i think more important than who am i it's what do you value and what are you doing about it so so i know that i've taken all sorts of personality profile tests right uh I, on the print survey, I'm an eight three. So I know that my internal motivators are to succeed and achieve and to be independent. Um, I've taken a value survey so that I know my values are uh, financial independence. And again, achievement showed up on that one. Um, I've taken the the five love languages survey. I know that, you know, I, I like time together. I know physical touch. So I've learned all these things about myself. And as I'm working with young people, you know, 12, 13, 14, the parents are always asking me, like, how do you help him become a leader? If he's going to be on the varsity team as a freshman or a sophomore, how is he supposed to feel comfortable leading the upperclassmen? And inevitably, I say, well, what's your leadership style? And the, the parent starts to answer back. And I'm like, well, if you if you don't let the child speak for themselves, how are they how are they ever going to learn? So as I've as I've been finding myself, as I've been finding my self identity, it's really been a journey into figuring out what I like. Uh, my wife and I, one of our favorite hobbies when we get to a new city, because we've lived in thirty three cities in this country, is we Google what are the best ten coffee shops, what are the best ten restaurants, the best ten breweries, and in two thousand nineteen. We were playing in Columbus, and Columbus is a tremendous city. If you've never spent any time there, I highly recommend it, Columbus, Ohio. They have the tourism bureau there has the Columbus Coffee Trail and the Columbus Brewery map. And what I realized about myself was I don't even know what type of coffee I like. Do I like it black? Do I like an Americano? Do I want an espresso, a cortado, uh, a mocha, a latte? Why? Why do I why do I drink what I drink? And what we what we did that season was we went to 40 different independent coffee shops. And it was so much fun because my wife and I had like a to-do list and something that we could kind of go on day dates before I went to the field for the day. And it was like a fun experience for us. But I tested all of these different coffees. And now I can say with confidence, I know what kind of coffee I like because I've tried all of them. Same thing with the breweries. Why do I drink Coors or why do I drink Stella? I feel like a lot of times people fall into something because they were recommended something early on. They decided what they like and they never tried anything else. I know my, my dad's like that. Again, I'm getting long winded, but to, to bring it back home, you ask, who am I? I feel like I can take a lot of ownership in a lot of the things that I like and a lot of the things that I'm passionate about because I've gone out of the way to explore. Every time my wife and I travel and we, it, we try to immerse ourselves in the culture. We eat the local food. We go to the local shops. The first time I traveled, I asked for ketchup in Australia. My wife was like, no, 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 that's that's an American thing. They don't serve ketchup on their chips here. These are not French fries. These are chips here. So I took that lesson to heart. And now I want to eat as the locals eat. I want to do what the locals do. And that's broadened my perspective on so many things. So as I self-identify, I do it from a place of experience. As you described your identity, very, there wasn't that much baseball in that identity. And I'm curious about this because you've been around some of the best baseball players in the world. Do you find that, uh, is there any correlation between baseball players and their curiosity or their desire to explore compared to being singularly focused? And I think, you know, the old school way would be like, don't do commercials. Don't be on social media. Just have your head down. Just get BP. You should be obsessed about baseball and shouldn't think about anything else. Have you noticed anything in being in locker rooms as far as the range of interests that people have compared to the singular focus? I think there's a part of you that needs to be obsessed to be great at anything. There's a, there's a part that needs to be obsessed. I know that in my career on days that I knew I was going to play the next day, my my brain would start wrapping itself around what do I need to do before I went to sleep the night before. So it definitely helps to be obsessed in a lot of regards. 
in contrast to that, early in my career, I met with the only other active Yaley in the big leagues at the time. You asked how many there were. There were two. Um, and Craig Breslow told me, I need to have a hobby every year because I'm an active type of guy. So one year, he taught himself how to draw. And he practiced drawing for 30 minutes every single day. And he got very proficient at it by the end of the season. One year, he learned how to play guitar. One year, he really focused on Candy Crush. And he liked Candy Crush because it was a puzzle game. And he he didn't just make whatever available move he saw first. He tried to think about it and beat every level on the first try. So I think different people need different things to be successful. If you try to lump all professional athletes or all baseball players into one category, you're not doing them the service of, of seeing them as individuals. I think people like, let's say Mike Trout, for instance, who's one of the best players that's ever played. He's very popular. But you don't see him do any commercials. He's very head down. He wants to not be in the limelight. He wants to sign his $400 million contract and not make money off the field or distract himself. That's fine. Then you see Bryce Harper, who is also one of the best players of all time in the same era. And he does Under Armour commercials. He's doing Gatorade commercials. He's he's doing all these sorts of things. And it's not affecting his play negatively. That's just who he is. So I think there's a lot of people that need to stay focused and be obsessed all the time. And there's a lot of people that need to stay super focused. And then like, like me, I needed something else to think about so that I wasn't obsessing all the time. It's interesting because your podcast is called Finding the Way. And when I first read that, I thought of Mandalorian. I don't know if you watched The Mandalorian. Yes, yes, I love that show. Right? So in The Mandalorian, which is a Star Wars uh, spinoff, the Mandalorians have this phrase where they say, this is the way. And it's very much a constricting way of thinking, which is this is the way we do things and we only do it. And we don't think about why we do it. We just think about how we do it. And that is the way. And the story, you can kind of see this Mandalorian start to question and start to evolve and wonder if everything they were taught philosophically is actually the way that they need to follow going forward. As you're exploring finding the way for people, what's coming up for you? What are people sharing about their way and how their way may be diverse from the previous person that you interviewed? That's Yeah, that's such a great question. When I was trying to decide what to call the podcast and what I was interested in talking about, the thing that really gets me going and it gets me really excited is that everyone has a different way of finding success. So my goal is to talk to people that have been wildly successful, people that have done things that millions of other people failed to do. And what got you over the hump? Like what made you different? I, I'm not willing to accept that you were just bigger, stronger, faster, and fumbled into success. And that's why I love the title and the content of, of this podcast for you. It's intentional performers. You did it on purpose. It wasn't an accident. So I, I'm talking to these, these successful people, successful athletes mostly, but I've had some mindset coaches. I'm interviewing a news anchor uh, next week. What was different for you? What was your mindset along the way? And it's it's been awesome to see the similarities and to see the differences in different people's styles. It's really cool. And a lot of what you've talked about up until now has been, we've got elite performance, peak performance, but a lot of what you were talking about before was leadership. And you mentioned what made the Israeli team special was connection, belonging, leadership. What made the Red Sox special was a different view of leadership and this connection that they had. I've started to wonder about leadership and the differences between leadership and performance. And this has started to really come up for me this year. And I just wrote an article about it. A lot of times high performers are elite at executing. Yeah. They know they've got a routine. They know how to do the thing. They can hit a ball. They can shoot a ball. They can throw a ball. Let's just use sports as an example, but you could do the same in business. Someone who sells insurance or you've been mortgages, whatever it might be, like they they have a routine, they build relationships, they have a system, and they they're really disciplined at doing that thing and executing. We've all seen the salesperson become a sales manager and really struggle because the leadership that's required to unlock the potential of people is really difficult. 
you've probably played with some of the best baseball players in the world who are really good at executing, but they may not be great at influencing the people around them or becoming a manager and then influencing a team. I have started to think that we undervalue leadership. And for me, I use a very simple definition for leadership, which is they positively influence the team or the people around them. Like leaders positively influence the team around them. And it's not always with positivity. It can be with confrontation, but it's done with the team in mind. As you've gone through your journey and played on all these teams and all these different areas and all these different levels, what are you noticing when it comes to leadership compared to performance and, and execution? Yeah, I have played on a lot of teams and I've I've played with a lot of great players who are not good leaders. And I've played with a lot of people that stick around in the game, not because they're a great player, but because they're a good leader. And I think people don't really understand leadership, especially when they're on the way up, when they're, when they're a youth player, a high school player. I thought leadership was about the leader. I thought it was about being the boss as I was growing up, about telling people what to do. It's very much not it. Leadership is about the people you lead. As I'm as I'm getting close to the end of my career here, I've partnered with a woman who's taught leadership for 20 years to corporate executives. And we have a program that we're facilitating. I've actually been doing this all off season where we teach the leadership based on science, based on the scientific research, the, the most recent data. And, and it, you know, it, it, this woman's name is Jackie Insinger. She's an absolute rock star. She's a, a rocket ship that's taking off. You should interview for her for this. And the program is called Spark Brilliance Leadership Accelerator. It always starts with the leader figuring out who they are and what's their leadership style. And then it turns into learn who your team is and learn how they like to be led. The thing she talks about is you've heard of the golden rule, treat other people the way you want to be treated, but you need to take it a step farther because not everyone wants to be treated like you. The platinum rule says treat other people the way they want to be treated. And it's a subtle shift and it makes so much sense immediately as soon as you hear it, but you're like, it's, it's also totally game changing. Treat other people the way they want to be treated. Learn how they like to receive feedback how they like to receive coaching, how, how are they going to hear you? How are they going to feel safe enough to receive the message and actually grow and learn from it? And how, how are they going to grow their skill set? How are you going to mark small wins and milestones along the way so that you don't feel stagnant or you don't feel butt up against this huge goal that feels unattainable? What's the best way to practice to achieve that? So I've taken what I've learned on the field, which I'll get back to in a second, and I'm partnering it with the latest data and science to bring it to corporations. And the results have been amazing. People are reporting like over 30% less burnout. They're reporting like 50% more connection to their teammates. Uh, I don't have the stats in front of me, but it, it's pretty remarkable. But when I look back at the baseball aspect, Johnny Gomes was an amazing leader for that team. Ryan Dempster was an amazing leader for that 2013 Red Sox team. Those two are not Hall of Famers, but they are who we needed. And th those are the two guys that made the difference. David Ross was a great leader for that team. He's not a Hall of Famer. He's a manager already in the big leagues. And I hope that he has the same success as a manager that he did as a player. But with those three player leaders on the team, John Farrell could almost stay out of the way. As you were talking about leadership, there were so many catcher analogies there. Receiving, you know, helping someone else. I never played catcher. I wanted no part of it. My two two of my best friends, they took care of that for our team. I want to be out on the field. Um, for some reason, my knees are still jacked up, uh, even though I didn't do that. But um, as you're talking about it, I'm hearing catcher and I'm thinking of the job of the catcher, which is to really work with the pitcher. We see catchers that will only, you know, a pitcher will only have that catcher catch for them. It, it is a job where they're the only one who you really can't see over the course of a game. Um, and yet you see them all the time. You see them all the time and you also can't see them. Yeah. What's that like? <laughs> uh, I loved it. I loved being a part part of it. And I loved the, the service aspect of it because 
realistically, the most important person on the field is the pitcher. And as the catcher, your main job is to help the pitcher be the best they can be that day. So as I got later in my career, and I wasn't maybe one of the best hitters that I had ever been in my own career, early on, I made a mark as a hitter. And later on, I, I stuck around because I really focused on my catching and leading a pitching staff. And it's, it's a skill that can't be valued highly enough. Does it get valued? Is it in the, in the big leagues? Let's just use that as an example. How important is, is leadership looked at when evaluating whether to sign a catcher or draft a catcher versus their tools, their arm, you know, their ability to keep the ball in front of them, obviously their bat. Um, Do you think teams value those intangibles from that position enough? I think no. And I think the reason is because you can't put a number to it yet. I think teams right now, we, the, the pendulum is swinging. The pendulum was, you have to pass the eye test. It has to feel good in the, the decision maker's gut. You have to look good in a uniform. We're not measuring anything. And now we've swung the pendulum to the other side where it's probably too far and it will come back to the middle, but now everything has a number, every, you know, exit velocity, launch angle, sprint speed, arm strength, everything that they can quantify is what they're selecting contracts on. It's what they're rewarding. It's what they choose. And you can't measure leadership yet. I think they're trying. I think game calling pitch, pitch calling, what, what pitches do you call for a certain pitcher against a certain hitter? You can't measure it yet. Everyone's trying. And as soon as they can, or as soon as they start to swing the pendulum back towards the middle of what is probably the right answer, I think leadership should be valued more, but you look at the salaries per position Catcher is the lowest salaried position on the field. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. I've never, I didn't know that. And, and, and like we had Clint Hurdle on the podcast. We've had Mark Shapiro on the podcast. Uh, who's been in baseball for a while. And it's interesting in the conversations I have with them, they say, oh yeah, analytics matters. I don't think anyone in baseball is saying it doesn't. And there's often an overcorrection and we pretend to, sort of uh, go too far in a certain direction. And as you're describing championship teams, it's it's fascinating because I had Sam Walker on the podcast who wrote Captain's Class, and he talks about you know the best teams of all time, what separated them, where they had captains. And sometimes those captains were not deemed the captain, but they were like the guys that you were talking about earlier with Gomes and Dempster, et cetera. You're going to play third base, though. Um, I don't think we're breaking any news here. Um, if we are, uh, World Baseball Classic, classic. here comes Ryan at third base. Um, <laughs> when you play out in the field, how? what are you focused on? It's probably a different focus than it is when you're when you're catching and calling the pitches and, and the rhythm of that and the intensity of that is probably different. I mean, baseball is such an interesting sport. I just played it as a kid. And, you know, if you're playing shortstop as a third grader, it's different than playing left field because no one ever hit it to left field except for maybe if a team had Orion on their team. And I don't think anyone we played against had Orion on their team. But um, when you're playing in the field, what, where is your focus? How do you stay focused in that position? It's still a hot corner and I understand it can come at you fast, but I would imagine it's a different mindset than when you're receiving balls as a catcher. Yeah, that's a good question. And as of the time we were recording this podcast, I have no idea because I've never played third base in my entire life. So as I prepare for the world baseball classic, I have been a catcher and I have played some first base. I have maybe 10 games at first in the majors maybe 50 to 60 games at first base in AAA and never before that either. So when our manager for Team Israel, Ian Kinsler, asked if I could play third, my answer, I was honest with him. I was like, listen, I've never done it. I've taken some ground balls. Let me go practice. Let me go take some and see if it's worth even giving it a shot. So a couple of times a week, I go to the cage. My wife rips them at me as hard as she can. She was a college softball player, so she's she can hit it pretty good. But I I will be over there probably trying not to pee my pants as the best hitters in the world in our division, you know, Vlad Guerrero Jr., Julio Rodriguez, Manny Machado, Miguel Cabrera, some of these, the best right-handed hitters in the world are standing 95 feet away from me. I will be trying to not make an error. You mentioned intentional performers earlier, and certainly I think a lot of the people I've interviewed will say they've been intentional with their journey, but a lot of them also uh, claim luck. So uh, good luck to you. I th- think uh, no, I'm wishing you, you all, all the luck in the world. 
But you bring up something that I've always thought about when I work with baseball players, and I feel similarly with football players going forward, which is how do you get quote unquote live bullets? So in baseball, they do stuff like a front toss or you hit off the tee or you take BP. Um, But when I talk to baseball players, I'm like, dude, what's it like to get a 96 mile an hour fastball on one pitch and then get a curveball and a change up and, and get live bullets to actually practice that. And it's really, really hard to practice for what it's going to be like in a, a real baseball game. And I bring up football because now they really try to preserve the body and, and they're not full tackling and practice. And the speed of those players is so astronomical that it, I think it's hard to simulate what it's like. Whereas in sports like soccer, baseball, lacrosse, uh, hockey, they can go live more easy, easier. It's easier to go live and simulate what it's like um, and what it's going to be like on game day, being around baseball in particular. And I think this is true for a lot of people outside of sports. How do you practice what it's going to be like and simulate what it's going to be like if you have barriers to do so. What what sort of things have you done to try to make sure you're getting reps so that when you get in the box, you feel like you're prepared? I think you have to try to practice in an uncomfortable environment because in the game, you're going to have the best opponents in the world trying to make you fail. And baseball is a game of failure anyway. But so often in the batting cage, you want to feel good. You want to hit it good. If you if you hit the last one bad, oh, let me take one more. And one more turns to five more until you get a good one. Pitchers that are throwing a bullpen, they they have the effort level. They they pull the last one into the into the dirt. Okay, let me get one more. You have to accept that you're not going to be successful all the time, and you have to make practice difficult. Because if practice is easy and you're comfortable in practice all the time, you're doing yourself a disservice for the game. All right. So take us to the game day. I saw a video where you said your walk-up song or what you like to listen to is don't go chasing waterfalls by TLC. You show your age or similar age to me. I appreciate you. Um, but I once heard a quote that Ted Williams said, if you want to be a great hitter, don't swing at bad pitches. And I'm thinking about you and, and, and the mindset you want to be in and listening to don't go chasing waterfalls. Can you take us into the mindset of what you bring into the batter's box and how you think about your approach and your philosophy? Uh, you've been playing at a really high level for a long time. What's allowed you to be able to do that? Um, and what allows you to be successful in the batter's box? So I, I'm trying to find a way to be aggressively selective but not selectively aggressive. And there's a distinction there. And my hitting approach got passed down from Manny Ramirez when I was with the Boston Red Sox coming up through the minors. It's very much a hitting's different than most other sports because it happens in less time than you, than it takes you to blink, right? By the, by the time that your eyelid goes up and down, you've already had to decide and, create four horsepower rotationally and hit a round bat with a round ball squarely. It's, it's physically baffling the fact that we're able to hit at all, not to mention hit on a regular basis on purpose. So if I'm in the batter's box and I'm waiting to see the ball before I decide if I'm going to swing, it's too late. I have no chance. There's a lot of muscle memory built up from practice over years and years and years. But when I'm trying to hit, I'm thinking I am going to take this specific swing, my A swing, my best swing at this specific pitch, the pitch that I hit very well. And I'm trying to start my movements so that I, how much of my swing can I get done before I have to commit to the ball? And while I could, could still stop it and slow myself down if I needed to. So I'm trying to get 30, 40% of my swing already started in the perfect path to the perfect location as I'm reading the pitcher's body language, the, the release point, the trajectory of the ball, and making a decision. And then it's really that split-second decision as you you either stop yourself at the last second or you follow through with the swing. You bring up Manny Ramirez, and and I think about him you know, being suspended uh, for testing positive. Uh, I'm not going to get into a whole steroid conversation with you specific to him. Um, but for my generation, we had Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, and we had this home run generation just boom. And then, of course, Barry Bonds. And 
you know, there was a lot of discussion about them saving baseball. And um, what I've always wondered about, let's just use Barry Bonds as an example. Like Barry was so freaking good for so long with the pirates and coming up and he would steal bases and he had this incredible skill set. And Manny Ramirez was so good for so long. Like there were so many great baseball players. And I wonder, let's, I'm just going to use Barry Bonds as an example. I wonder for him, uh, regardless of what he did or didn't do, like he knows how good he was without that stuff. And I would imagine a lot of these guys, like you don't get to the major leagues just because you, like if I took steroids, I wasn't playing major league (laughs) baseball. And so I wonder like, what your perspective is on, on that, especially with your philosophy background and, you know, caring about ethics and thinking about morals and, and how you think about it. Like my view is that honestly, like those guys should all be in the hall of fame. I think it was an era. This is my view. And like, you know, they were the best of the best during that era, but I didn't play. I wasn't next to them, like working my ass off doing it clean. Like I, so I don't I don't have any other perspective than as a fan. I'm curious to get your perspective and you don't have to name any names, but just generally like how you view that for yourself. I'm sure there were opportunities or there are thoughts along the way to do that as well. I don't know if you did or you didn't, but um, what your perspective is on all of that. From personal experience, I've, I've never been offered steroids. I never considered taking steroids, but I know there was a couple people that took steroids as opponents and a couple of people that took steroids as competitors that ended up taking a spot ahead of me who was trying to do it clean or in the last WBC, the pitcher that beat us to eliminate us tested positive for steroids after the game. And it feels unfair to be the person doing it the right way in competition with or opposing somebody that's, that's taking a shortcut. So my, from personal experience, it still eats at me inside of that. I wasn't playing on a fair playing field. When we look back at the steroid era, do I think these guys should be in the Hall of Fame? I'm I'm in I'm on of two minds of it because I don't think you can tell the history of baseball without putting in the black guys and putting in the ugly eras. Also, that being said, do we assume that? the majority of the people in the league were doing it and that it was an assumed risk and that the people that chose not to do it chose not to do it versus doing it. That's where I kind of draw the line of if it was assumed that everybody was doing it, then put them in. If these guys were outliers and the only ones doing it, then maybe not. But when I look at baseball and you said you wouldn't have been a major league baseball player just because you had taken steroids. What I'm assuming helps these guys be greater than average it's yes they have a slightly more strength but everybody in the major leagues is at their physical prime so everybody's as big strong and fast as they're ever going to get but traveling around the country on an airplane in a new bed every three nights in a new city different time zones for six months plus spring training seven months plus the playoffs eight months it is a grind and it is taxing on your body and it's taxing on your focus I was just talking to you about how hitting a baseball is the hardest thing to do in all of sports. And it happens in the same time as the blink of an eye. If you are a little lethargic or a little tired or a little jet lagged, you're not going to hit the ball clean. You're going to hit it a a 16th of an inch off, or you're going to be a hundredth of a second late or a hundredth of a second early. And you're going to just miss it. And what would have been a home run is now an out. When Barry Bonds had his 70 home run year, he also had a a bajillion walks, right? He didn't swing and miss. He didn't chase. What made him so great was, yes, he was bigger and stronger than maybe he would have been naturally, but he was 100% focused, 100% rested, and his reaction time was 100 plus percent of what it would have otherwise been. That's what I think the real benefit was for those guys. And I would imagine it's belief. It's the knowledge that your body is as strong as it possibly can be. And you're maxing it out. And when you get up in the batter's box, like you've done everything you've needed to do to have whatever small advantage you can have over that ball that is coming at you 90 plus miles an hour. What would you do to make sure that 
you had conviction and belief in yourself, knowing that the odds were against you every time you got in the box? There was a lot of times that I felt nervous or unsure. I can admit that, especially, you know, as I'm, as I'm a grown man now and, and I'm not trying to, to fake it or prove it anymore. One of the things I learned, I took an online class through Yale called the science of happiness. And this, I ended up coincidentally, I took it during COVID when everybody could use a little more science of happiness. And one of the things I took away from that class is genius, whatever the genius for you is and however it's going to come out requires time and space for creativity. It requires a certain mindset, a certain mood. And for me, that mood is jovial or, or involves laughter. When I, in 2019, when I got released from AAA with the Yankees and I ended up in the big leagues with the Reds the next day and I had the best game of my life and I broke the Reds debut record. All I did between outside of looking at a scouting report, outside of flying there, passing a physical, all, all the machinations that needed to happen. I listened to stand up comedy that entire day because I was nervous as hell. I had been playing like garbage for the AAA Yankees. There's a reason they released me. And now I'm getting another shot in the big leagues that I never knew if I'd ever play in the big leagues again. And I have the best game of my life out of nowhere. And I, and I formally believe it's because I was listening to stand up comedy and my chemicals in my body were like happy or, you know, whatever endorphins get released when you're happy and laughing. I didn't feel the pressure because I'm sitting in the on deck circle repeating to myself the joke that I heard before the game on Pandora. When you talk about laughter and baseball, I think of the Savannah bananas and what Jesse Cole is, is doing with that. And we had Jesse on the podcast. It was an interesting conversation. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on what they're doing with baseball? I don't know how familiar you are with what they're doing. Uh, I'm curious to just get your viewpoint as someone who's between the lines and, and been in a traditional uh, baseball sport, I think it's like 15 years now or whatever it's been for you uh, professionally. Uh, what are your thoughts on what they're doing? I love it. I think it's great for the game. Anything that you can do, because the argument against baseball right now is that baseball is not fun. Baseball is for the older generation. Anything that anyone can do to make it fun again, and to, to bring it to young people and to bring it to social media. I love that they create TikToks every single day. There's people playing backflips. I saw this morning to catch a ball in the outfield. I hope that whenever I do retire, that I can play a couple of games with the Savannah Bananas and, and be a part of it because I really love what they're doing. Well, we'll connect you whenever that is with Jesse and, and see if I'm not taking a brokerage fee. I'm not your agent. I will just <laughs> send an email and just say, hey, Jesse, you might want to connect with Ryan. Uh because when I watch your Instagram um, and I prepared for this, it was very Savannah banana-y. It was like you had mascots. You've got, you know, which one of these is actually the lefty hitter? Which one of these is the shortstop? I mean, there was a lot of Savannah banana-y thing. I've never said Savannah banana-y, but I think we're going to roll with that. And so it just caught my attention. I'm also thinking about intelligence. And I've had a lot of athletes over the years who are highly intelligent and they'll often say to me, Brian, I wish I was just dumb and I wish I could play my sport stupid. And my brain gets in the way because I overthink and I don't let my body do what I've trained my body to do. I think you went to Yale and, and you know, wanted to be a rocket scientist. You studied philosophy. Like, look, I think we can say that you have decent intelligence. I think that's fair as a judgment. This conversation is proving that to be true as well. Were there moments where you wish you were just like, man, I wish I didn't have any of this and I could just hit that damn ball without my mind having any involvement in this? Uh, has that been something that's been a part of your journey as well? Uh, I've never wished that I didn't, whatever intelligence level I have, say that it's like a sum, a total, a sum total. I've never wished that it was less, but I've definitely seen and played with other players that. I can see that they just think they are God's gift to this green earth and that they think they're better than they probably are. And that that's that confidence, whether it's grounded in reality or not helps them be better than they ever would be otherwise. And with that, uh, in 2021, I lose track of the years, whatever year I played with the Cleveland, it was the Indians before they became the guardians. I knew I was not going to make the big league team out of spring training. And I talked to Terry Francona, the manager, and I was like, I know I'm not going to make this team. 
yada, 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 yada. We had this conversation. And what he said to me is, it's really tough to be a, a good self-evaluator in this game. Because if everyone was a good self-evaluator, then no one would feel like they belong here. These are the best players in the world. There's 750 jobs. There's 30 jobs at each position and maybe 30 backups. So you're looking to be the top 60 at what you do in the world. It's tough to be a good self-evaluator. And I ended up getting called up to the big leagues two times that year and, and playing pretty well for him. But I, I, I always will remember that conversation that he had of it's tough to be a good self-evaluator. And sometimes you need a little bit of being dumb or having bad perspective or thinking you're better than you are so that you can live up to that. You think some of those leaders you mentioned earlier were good self-evaluators? David Ross, you mentioned uh, Gomes, you mentioned Dempster, I think. Um, when you think about them, were were they self-aware? Were were they good at reflecting on their strengths and their weaknesses and knowing knowing who they were? That's a good question. I know David Ross was because I had a, a lot of conversations with him about embracing the backup catcher role, embracing the fact that you're going to play once a series, maybe once a week, but finding a way to make an impact on the team on the days that you're not on the field in the lineup. And that's what he was so good about. He would come into the dugout and he would be yelling obscenities that I cannot repeat, but it made everyone happy. It loosened up the team. He would steal signs from the dugout and it wasn't necessarily the pitch signs or the steal sign. I remember he would, he would steal the other team's pickoff sign. The year that Jacoby Ellsbury hit 30 homers and stole 30 bases, if you go back and watch the video, he stayed on first base looking at our dugout to see if David Ross would give him the sign that they were going to pick off or not before he took his lead. So he knew before he left the base whether he could steal or whether he needed to be careful because they were going to pick off. And there's so David was, Ross. Like he's not a co he's not a manager. He's just no, he's a, a player. player. He's a player, but he's helping his teammate. Uh, and he already has developed a managerial relationship, a leadership yep. relationship to try to help the team win. Yes. Finding a way to bring value to the team on, when you're not going to be on the field during the game. So I know David Ross did, and he was very self-aware. I had conversations with Johnny Gomes about like, how do you value the things you're doing on the field? And he changed my perspective on that a little bit. I don't know if they're self-aware in the way that you're regarding as far as good self-evaluators. I know David Ross was. I, for me, at least, here here's where I come to it. First of all, I think you can be really good being stupid. I don't think you can be great. I think if you study the great performers, at least I, I, as I have, their ability to be self-evaluative in preparation and then let go of that in performance is what separates them. And so they have the ability to be humble in preparation. I call it arrogance in performance. Uh, if someone doesn't want to call it arrogance, that's fine. Call it confidence, whatever you want. But to me, it's the ability to self-reflect. It's the ability to look at, all right, where do I need to improve? How do I need to improve? And then shift out of that when I'm competing and when I'm performing. Um, and it's hard to have both. I think authenticity is flexible. I don't think it's rigid, just like you're describing your identity and have all these pieces to you. I think sometimes we say, no, I'm just humble. Okay, well, if you're humble when a 95-mile-an-hour ball is coming at you, it's not going to end up great for you. But you need that humility to go get better and improve. Or I'm perfectionistic. Okay, great. You need that to perfect your swing and make sure it's exactly what you want it to be. But when you get in a batter's back box, you need to be adaptable. And you need to find a way. And you need to, you know, I'm in Washington, D.C., so like Juan Soto, like his adaptability when there's two strikes, and he's not in Washington, D.C. anymore, but his ability to change how he would show up. And, and I talk about in my book, selfish in preparation, like you need to do everything to take care of yourself. And then you need to be selfish, selfless, like David Ross was like, that's how games are won. We need to think about the team. We might have to lean into a pitch. We might have to bunt. We might have to hit a sack fly. Like there's things that we all have to do that has to contribute to winning. And so I'm a big believer in polarity and, and the value of, we might need something 
in preparation. That's very different than what we need in performance. And I'm a basketball guy. So we saw that with Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, you know, early in their career, they would just score and they would score at will, but they figured out that in order to actually make the team better, they need to get everybody else involved. They needed to help everyone win. And then when it came time to close, okay, now give me the ball. I'll put it on my shoulders. And so to me, that's leadership. And those guys evolved as leaders. Both of them would admit earlier in their career, they were bad leaders. They were my way or the highway. They get into fist fights with their teammates and they never, to your point, thought about what does this team need? What do they, what motivates them? How can I serve them? They were just treating them how they would want to be treated, not what they, how their teammates wanted to be treated. So I just went on a little bit of a, a, a riff, but to me, like, that's what I would always say to those athletes that were really smart. I'd say, okay, yeah, maybe it can help you get good if you turn that part of you off. But if you want to be great, you're going to need to self-reflect. You're going to need to self-evaluate because that's the only way you're going to be better if you're curious about your approach and and how you can improve and have the quote unquote growth mindset and think about that. Um, So I think it's both. Um, But I understand how at a certain level, we might need to just acknowledge this is who we are. This is the role we play. And this is how we can impact the team. And that's where we call them professionals. Like the people that show up and they're focused on the team and they're not telling the manager or the coach that they need to go in and they need to play this and they need to do that. And we see that in every sport and those guys do, they stick around longer. So I, I went on a rant. Um, I want to plug your children's book, which I know isn't out yet, but I think we started this conversation talking about Israel and playing for that team and the impact it's had. Uh, talk about the book. And I know you've you've gotten started on it. You've written a manuscript. You even showed me a preview. We're not going to share it, but you showed me a preview of of what the cover is going to look like. Uh, why write that? Why, why like share your experience with the Israeli team and, and specifically as it relates to to children? I think it's important for people to have an example of someone else that didn't understand right away and learned later. I think it's it's important for people to see that there's more than one way to, to make a decision. There's more than, more than one way. That's what my whole podcast is about. That's what my whole platform and passion is about is, is sharing my story and sharing other people's stories in a way that might help another human being. It's, it's service. Uh, my, my whole goal behind this book is that somebody might read it and, and feel like they can find where they belong also, or they can relate to it and take something positive away from it for themselves. Belonging is such an interesting word. We had Owen Eastwood on the podcast. He wrote a book called Belonging. It's actually over my shoulder. Not that anyone's going to see the video of this, but uh, it's the it's right over my right shoulder. Awesome book. Um, and I do. I think I think you're on it. And I think if I want my kids, what do I want to instill in them? First of all, I want them to find their own journey and their own path. Uh, but I also uh, hope for them that they're part of something bigger than themselves, whether it's their family or their community uh, or their friendships. It, it could be anything. I think life gets pretty lonely. And uh, you mentioned the pandemic. I think for a lot of people, the pandemic was a time where we didn't feel as connected. And at least for me, I'll speak for me, I didn't feel as connected and a sense of belonging to people. And uh, it's something that I've been really intentional about seeking out uh, as things open up and and become more quote unquote normal. Uh, Ryan, this has been a lot of fun, uh, really helpful uh, for me. And you've got me thinking about a lot of different things. If people want to follow you, I know you're active on Instagram. Um, Where can they do that? And then I know you've got a website, you've got the podcast going. Uh, I'm excited to continue to do a deep dive into that. Uh, Where can they find all that good stuff? Check me out at ryanlevarnway.com. My podcast is on all podcast platforms called Finding the Way with Ryan LeVarnway. Um, Instagram at rlevarnway, Twitter at ryanlevarnway. Um, my goal, again, my goal is to either make people smile or or give some people something that they can take and use in their own life. I'm all about service. I'm all about uh, positivity. And yeah, I'm, just, I'm super grateful for you having me on here. And this has been fun for me too. Yeah. And I'll plug his podcast. So he has Jimmer Fredette on his first episode. And I was telling Ryan before we started recording, I I mean, Jimmer's run in college at BYU. At the time I had an NBA draft website. And so I watched a lot of BYU basketball and a lot of Jimmer Fredette. And I know you'll enjoy that conversation. They talk about Jimmer playing against people in prison uh, when he was in high school, uh, developing a scoring ability, playing in China and what that's been like for him. Uh, And Ryan does a fantastic job over there. 
Uh, I'm on social media as well. Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn is the other place that I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Ryan, I'm so excited to see how the World Baseball Classic goes for you. I will be cheering you on. Um, and then I'm also excited to continue following your journey on social media as well. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. We were a team that didn't have any business being in the tournament with the best teams in the world. But we rallied around the fact that we are all the Jamaican bobsled team of baseball. We were called wannabes, has-beens, never worse. We were, we were told we had no chance to be there and we looked like the cast of the Bad News Bears that perfectly filled out the roster of a team that had zero chance of winning and found a way to win anyway. So being able to have a, a shared goal and a shared vision like that, along with Team Israel, there was also the spiritual aspect of I had never been teammates with a, a bunch of Jewish men before. And the community that rallied around us, it really helped me find myself as a man and it really helped my, me find myself as a, as a Jewish man.